To inhabit a home means to leave traces. It is a place of self-expression, a place of one's own. And Well, I Just Kind of Liked It is a new collection of writing edited by Wendy Erskine about art in the home and indeed the home itself as art through a series of essays, conversations, photographs, drawings and reflections. Each contributor sheds light on the stuff of the home. Contributors include Latifa Kai, Darren Anderson, Rosa Coy, Susanna Dickey, Wendy Erskine herself, Nicole Flattery, David Hayden, David Keenan and many more. Delighted to be joined by two of those writers on this evening's arena, Darren Anderson and Nicole Flattery. Um, Darren, your essay is is a real trip down memory lane. It seems as if the house you grew up in was a a kind of a mini art gallery, if, if a bit thrown together, a mini art gallery nonetheless. It was, yeah, it was a strange one because it was, and I grew up in Derry and uh, I grew up in a sort of working class part of town with these Victorian terraced houses that had been built sort of in shipbuilding times. And um, it was a very monochrome kind of place. It was during the Troubles and, uh, you know, you, you would have thought that you were in some kind of um, sort of hovisad, you know, <laughs> everything was a bit grim up north. Um, <laughs> but within our house, my parents had put together this amazing collection of, of art from across the world, um, primarily Chinese and Japanese. They had a Chinese and Japanese room filled with scrolls and woodblock prints and moonlit scenes and dragons swirling. And it was, um, yeah, they didn't really have much, but they had a lot of kind of imagination. And um, it was a a kind of cabinet of curiosities, I think. Mm. I was quite astonished to read that you talked about your spatial memory it sounds as if everything you write in the essay and you go into the detail of little corners and precisely where pieces of of, uh, statues are, precisely where there are drawings. And this is all from memory. You didn't revisit the place to kind of check it out. You did it from your head. Yeah, I I wrote it uh, in this basement flat that I'm in in London and uh, I have a a, a very strange memory. Um, I've I've no idea even now, you know, what year it is now. Um, so I'm not good at remembering anything that sort of that means anything or has any use in everyday life. But I can walk through spaces that I've been to and see them like photographic mm. memory, can see everything in the room. And um, yeah, so there's a there's an old French book uh, called The Poetics of Space by Gaston Bachelard. And that's that's been a, a book that's resonated with me. It's a similar idea. You go into these spaces and you find nooks and crannies and, you know, you explore the house um, the way a child would. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, you get that sense of wonder and, and revelation that children have. Um, but I, I'm kind of cursed with that type of memory. It's not it's not necessarily a good thing, but well, it's I useful just, for essays like this. Yeah, I, was, I was going to say, I'm going to ask Nicole Flattery whether she thinks that's a curse to have a memory like that. To think, Nicole, that you could just <laughs> conjure up a place or a time or an event in your spatial memory, as Darren just described to us, and then write it down on a page, that'd make work an awful lot easier, wouldn't it? Yeah, definitely. I definitely don't have a memory like that. I'm very jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't consider it a curse at all. In terms, in terms of your own essay in the collection then, Nicole, you did have to delve into the memory a little bit, but mm-hmm. not too far back. You're yeah. going back to, to 2019. Your mm-hmm. essay is entitled Tim Mara. So tell us where Tim Mara fits into the what you were doing in 2019. And I guess tell us what you were doing in 2019 <laughs> at the same time. Um, so Tim Mara is a printmaker, essentially, and he was my father's cousin. 
um, which I found out in the course of kind of researching my own novel, um, which is about Andy Warhol. And he kind of made prints that are, are not dissimilar to kind of um, pop art, um, which I was researching a lot in 2019. So I made this sort of like family connection, which was unexpected. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you you because I'm I'm interested in how your father told you that piece mm. of piece of information because when I read it in the essay I went let me read back over that again. <laughs> um, well, I was like kind of curious if there was any artists in my family, ah, and right. my my parents were like no none, um, as if to kind of discourage me. But then like several weeks later, my father was like no actually there was one. Um, uh, so yeah, that's how I found. So the the fact that it was your father's cousin who mm. was the artist, but it sounded as if it was the way I read it in the essay. Sounded as if it was kind of casually dropped into conversation. Oh, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very casually. Yeah, no, no ceremony but, to it at all. But but you think that you think that there was a kind of a secrecy around it, was there? No, 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 no secrecy. I just don't think that. Um, yeah, we, we. I thought of it really, and I'm sure it was mentioned before, but because I had not really been thinking about art in that kind of way, like I'm, I was primarily a short story writer. I've never mm. really written about art um, up until and up until recently. Um, and and I wasn't searching for it, and and when I was, I found it. I think. And I guess the minute the minute you started researching and thinking about Andy Warhol, the yeah. whole world of pop art must have opened up to you. What were those researches like? Where did you travel? How did you go about researching that period? Well, Andy Warhol is kind of the a name that like once you you start thinking about it, you see it everywhere, mm. um, and you can't stop seeing it. <laughs> you wish you could. Um, I just went to go to a lot of exhibitions, watch a lot of films. Um, there's such a like a, a huge amount of information out there that. Almost when you're researching, you you kind of have to stop because you could research it forever. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting project because I I, I looked at art in, in a way I hadn't I hadn't before at all. So when uh, Wendy asked me to contribute to this book, I I, I was like, finally, I can do this because uh, I I think uh, not just me but other people would have like a certain nervousness around writing about art and, and in a way that I wouldn't like a short story. And and uh, we'll we'll come back to the specifics of your your. I keep thinking of as your, as your uncle, but he's not. He's no. your father's cousin. Yeah. So somebody else can work out what relationship that. <laughs> yeah. As a first cousin <laughs> once removed, it's something like that. Yeah. But but let me go back. We'll we'll come back to to Tim and the 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 uh, way you write about his art in a moment. But let me go back to you, Darren. Um, Nicole explaining to us there about finding out that there was an an artist in the family. I've mentioned about the amount of art that was in your house. Wonderful thing that to have all of these wonderfully valuable items of art hanging up around the parental home, the family home. I'm sure you cashed in 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 a huge way on it, did you? Yeah, there's no family heirlooms, unfortunately. (laughs) No, I came to realise... when I left home, I came to realize that it was all junk, essentially, that it was kind of bric-a-brac that they'd picked up um, along, you know, from thrift stores and secondhand shops. And I think they just had, you know, somehow they had good taste. They, they were just, it, w- it was almost like um, a kind of defiant thing, I think, you know, to make a place that was very monochrome, to try and bring color into it and make it interesting. But when I left home and I went out into the big bad world, I realized that uh, it was all junk. And um, at the same time, I realized that, you know, th- there's a there's a sense where it's not junk as yeah. well. You know, even though the stuff was financially kind of worthless, it they had all come from the other side of the world and they'd gone on these journeys. And again, these are things that we forget as adults, the children are very aware of, you know, they'll see Made in Taiwan at the back of 
something in the, and they'll have these sort of great reveries in their head about how this object got across the world and the adventures that it's seen and we sort of get embarrassed about that when we're adults and we forget um you know you walk into a supermarket and there's fruit from every single corner of the world and it's no no big deal at all um but then you know i'll, I'll go to a gallery and i'll see a painting of like king charles ii holding a pineapple as if it's you know come from saturn um so we sort of forget the strangeness and the weirdness of reality that we're we've got all these connections all over the world and um and i i think it's a real gift that my parents were able to give me mm. that this sort of um portal to other places at a time when you know escape and dairy was was a good idea if you could and because one of the paragraphs opens on that specific idea of the, the everything being junk, it took me a long time to realise that these treasures were all junk. And it's the word treasures that that interests me there, because I suppose, and it's one of the things that I know Wendy was keen to, from reading her introduction, to explore in the essays that she she has in this uh, new collection, is this idea of. What is the value and where? how does something get value? When you call them treasures there, mm. you're, you're obviously talking about something much more than something having financial value. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's an idea, there's a thing called aura that uh, German writer Walter Benjamin writes about in, in this essay about uh, mechanical reproduction. And he talks about how, you know, factory-made items don't have the same feeling or the same investment of spirit and time and effort that you know handmade goods had in the medieval times when someone actually made them and uh, i i i disagree somewhat with with some of the conversations that go on about that because um children would take any object uh even if it's you know an, an empty coca-cola bottle you know and the, and they will invest it with a kind of hmm. sentimental meaning there's a context around it it's it reflects where they were who was around you know what the time was and and it happens all kind of meaningless objects you know once enough time has passed even the most insignificant things are invested with incredible aura for want of a better hmm. word you see this and I, I see this in london you know, there's people down, there's mudlarks going down to the Thames and picking up little pieces of, of basically junk that was dropped in, you know, during Victorian mm-hmm. times or going right back to Roman times or Celtic times. And uh, and time itself sort of invests things with meaning um, and sentimental value. Um, so in a way, the financial is the, the least interesting thing about it. I'm wondering from your side then, Nicole, when you went and you looked at the the work of your father's cousin, Tim Mara, uh, did it did it acquire an extra value of mm-hmm. some other kind that wasn't financial because it was a family member? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And like it felt, I felt very close to it in a way that I, I, I wasn't expecting to. But um, there wasn't actually, there is actually right now a print of his uh, in Emma, uh, which I only found because I was, uh, I was kind of wandering around looking at things. Mm. And I was like, oh. I, I recognised it and yeah, I, it definitely has more meaning. Um, I, I feel very close to his work. There's a there's a, a, a reproduction of one of his mm-hmm. pieces called Picture Window from 1980, multicolour screen print, which is right beside your essay in yeah. the new collection, the Wendy Erskine collection that we're speaking about. Well, I just kind of liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, would you describe, which is what you do in the essay to a certain extent, you describe this this piece of work to us? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, there is. It, it has a kind of strange um, feeling to it. Um, and I've often been told my work has a, a strange kind of feeling to it. So I have that connection. But uh, mm. it's a it's a man sitting at a blue table looking sort of kind of dismayed 
uh, in front of this kind of picturesque uh, garden uh, beside a fan. And, and these it's sort of cluttered and all his prints are kind of cluttered and, um, you know, it's hard to, to to figure out a meaning, but I, I think when you kind of take everything in, um, yeah, it's a it's that kind of pop, mm. pop art feeling as well, you know. Yeah, but there's something that you say in the essay about if you look at this long enough. Uh, you describe the man sitting. It, he looks as if he's sitting at a table, but mm. in fact, it's a, it's a big disc that he stand. Is he standing in front of it? I think, in fact, yeah. or is he? He is sitting. He, he is, is seated. Sitting. Yeah. Just describe. You, you talk about if you look at this long enough how that character starts and maybe this is the writer in you I don't know <laughs> he starts to take on all sorts of possibilities as a character yeah yeah. I I, so I feel that um, he's so ordinary looking that if you look kind of for long enough his ordinary starts to become sort of sinister um, trying too hard to, to look normal I feel <laughs> um, yeah so he could be anything you know and I think when you um, his, his work lets you read a lot into it yourself you know it doesn't project any meaning onto it and I, re- I really like that and there's another, another. You mentioned another of of his works, your favorite, in fact, which was in your in your grandmother's good room. Yeah. So this is a bit of home art, I, I suppose, <laughs> that that fits into the the collection as well. Describe that piece to us, if you would. Yeah, there's a girl sitting in a kind of like good room, um, with like which I said like reminds me of my my grandmother's good room, where there's a glass cabinet and where all her good objects were and. Um, you know, it has that kind of feeling of chilly obedience that that room always demands. But this girl is really dressed up, like she's really dressed up to the nines, you know. She's wearing these boots and, you know, she just wants to leave. Um, so they mm. kind of, both of these figures' worlds, I feel like, have become uninhabitable to them. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the, there is that strangeness to it. But mm. if you suddenly discovered that you had a relation who was involved in the art world. You have a discovery of a totally different kind, Darren, to come back to you and your essay, Garrett. You're going to read a little section uh, for us that uh, is, is, well, let's not say where it, where it brings you, but it, it explains the title, why the title is Garrett and where you went. Do you know the section I'm talking about? I think you do. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. So, so you've been looking around the house and, and you've seen all these things and then you, you, you tell us this little bit of a story. Sure. What I expected to find there, I do not know. I was an insatiably bookish boy. My head rattled with more literary detritus than any attic could hold. Given the modesty of our circumstances, there wasn't much choice in reading material. Once I'd exhausted whatever novels could be found, I would consume old miscellanies. Parashiel Encyclopedia, Chambers Information for the People, the New Universal Handbook of Necessary Information. I did not understand half of what I read, but I delved regardless to feed the appetite. One of the consequences was that I came to know of many books without directly reading them, having to conjure up my own distorted versions from the scraps I could find. Among the threads I picked up, several led upwards to the attic. It was a place where spiders, rats and ghouls dwelt a place of evil paintings and moth-eaten crones, where shameful secrets were locked and the unwanted immured. It was also a place where treasure maps might be found. I was still naive enough to see the world through a gothic prism, to assume that evil would look like evil and not its opposite. The attic, by contrast, tells us little of itself and everything about the rooms in the house that are not the attic. The attic... What a place the attic was in that house. Um, quite shocking, I, su- I suppose, in some ways, to find some of the stuff that you found up there, Darren. 
Yeah, there's uh, there was a lot of kind of family secrets and things, um, and you know, er, like it's a place to hide things, I guess, and and to put things that you want to keep and you know you have to keep, but you don't want to look at day in day out. And uh, I mentioned in the essay, I think that uh, there was a I was running in a friend's house when I was very small, and um, we were sitting playing computer games, and there was a noise coming from the attic, and I said, "Them, you know, is that rats or?" Is that mice up in the attic? And he said, um, oh, no, that's my uncle. He's, he's hiding. You're not allowed to tell anybody. <laughs> Which is an indication of what was going on in Derry at the time. And it was just totally normal. It was just, okay, yeah, there's an uncle hiding in the attic. That's that's everyday life. I, I know. Um, so I was fascinated by the places, obviously, after that. It was just like, I, I have to go and investigate. Also, the forbidden quality. You know, you want to go to the room that you're not allowed to go to. Yeah. I, and and that links in with me in some ways, Nicole, to the to the good room in your granny's house. Mm. Was it one of those rooms that you that you weren't allowed to go into, or certainly when you went in there, you had to be shockingly careful? <laughs> I was careful. I think I was just fascinated by it because at that age, you know, you you love like objects. Um, and then it's funny what Darren was saying earlier. I, I don't have a very good memory for everyday things like what I did yesterday or anything like that. But I can remember still like certain objects in that room. Like I can still remember certain trinkets I played with. And yeah, I can see them very clearly in a, in a way that I, I can't a lot of other other stuff. Um, so that's interesting. So maybe there is a little bit of a spatial <laughs> memory in there somewhere that you just haven't <laughs> tapped into yet. Any kind of memory I'd be happy to have, spatial or otherwise. <laughs> I, I'm wondering though, in the process of writing about art and art in the home, as you both have been doing in these essays, did it strike? Did you did you start to see similarities between your own practice as a writer and indeed the practice of whatever particular artist you were looking at, whose or whose work you were looking at? I'll I'll, I'll finish with you on that one, Nicole. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a it's a great question. Um, I think it's it's interesting because I I'm not um, artistic at all. Like I was one of those children that was extremely bad at drawing and things in school. But and I, I don't think um, usually think that I have any kind of link to it. But I was like just simply the. The act of kind of what I, I took from Timara was the act of kind of doing the work every every single kind of day and inspiration kind of only takes you you so far, um, which is what I I really got from his from his paintings and and how detailed they are and yeah you know and I guess you you maybe found out more about men in the attic than you did about anything else in the case of your essay, Darren. <laughs> I did, yeah. It's, uh, be careful what you look for sometimes. Because <laughs> <laughs> you just might you just might find it. You might find it. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, thanks to thanks so much to both of you for talking to us about this, uh, this evening, both uh, Nicole Flattery there and Darren Anderson talking to us about their essays. Well, I just kind of like it is the title of the collection and it is edited by Wendy. It is edited by Wendy Erskine. You're listening to Tuesday Night's Arena. Crash is Ireland's leading new music ensemble. They are a group of world-class musicians who play the most adventurous and groundbreaking music of today. Well, these purveyors of all things new in music are pushing on and they are this year celebrating their 25th year. To celebrate that occasion, Crash Ensemble have a special anniversary programme that will showcase all aspects of their current work, live performance, commissions and much more. Delighted to be joined in studio this evening by three of the ensemble, conductor Ryan McAdams, artistic director and cellist Kate Ellis and double bassist Cayman Gilmore. Well, first of all, I suppose I should say uh, Kate Ellis, first of all, 
Happy birthday, if that's the right thing to say oh, to the to the crash you. ensemble. I, I was thinking, Kate, uh, when this ensemble started up back in 1997, you would have been at that point, I suppose, kind of coming to the end of your studies and embarking on a professional career. What did crash mean to, to young musicians like you at that time, back when it was starting up? So when it was starting up, I actually, um, I, I became a member in sort of late 2002. Two, I think so. Mm. I actually missed the very um, the initial starting of it, but I think from by all accounts and from you know talking to lots of people and some of the founding members members are still playing with the ensemble. Actually, there was a there was a need and there was a want within the city and within the musicians mm. of the city to kind of explore and experiment and try new things and you know get excited by new music and new presentations of new music. So I think that was that was kind yeah. of the reception of it. Oh, well, I suppose what, what I meant was, you know, when you, were, when you were studying in college and knew that you were going to head out into the professional world, did Crash already have a kind of a cachet? Were you, were you aware of it at that time? And was it an ensemble that you were already thinking, well, when I'm out there in the big bad world, I want to be involved in music like that? Um, not so much. No, I wasn't really aware of it until I was asked to play, actually, to be perfectly honest. But as soon as I kind of jumped on that bandwagon, mm. I realised there was a whole kind of world of possibilities out there. And that was the one, that was the path I chose to take. Yeah. And I mean, that that initial performance, where and, and when and what was it and how well do you remember it? I remember it so well, actually, because I was so, so, so nervous. I think I was just finishing college and... Um, it was, I remember the one piece that I was really, really, really worried about was a piece by Manus Limburg called Ur, Ur. And it was a concert in the Project Art Centre. Um, I think it was over two nights what I was only playing on one night. I remember, yeah, I, I have a very, very vivid memory of it. And and you were a great fan and admirer of Donica Dennehy's work at that time. Donica, of course, being one of those founding members, along, along with uh, Andrew Sinnott and Michael Seaver. Um, what, what what I mean, I've interviewed Donica so many times, and he's just this ball of energy. What strikes you as a musician when you're in and around the company of Donica Dennehy? <laughs> well, I think at this stage he understands every single member of the ensemble, and he understands their musical sensibilities. And he understands the kind of the language that we've grown to collectively speak. And he, he kind of feeds into that energy. And, you know, that, that, that mm. kind of visceral energy, the fizzy energy you were talking about there. Uh, yeah, you can you feel that in him. And when he comes into the room and when we play his music, you can really feel that. And for you then, Ryan, you came along much later into the process. What was your your first encounter with the Crash Ensemble? Yeah, my first uh, time I met the gang, we were we were match made. Um, that Crash had nothing to do with it. Uh, I was hired by what was then Wide Open Opera, which has now been amalgamated into Irish National Opera, um, to conduct Donica Dennehy and Enda Walsh's second opera, The Second Violinist. Um, I had done a gig for one of the producers before then, and they remembered me and sent me an email. And um, yeah, I was absolutely uh, terribly intimidated the first time I I met all these <laughs> amazing not musicians. Not because right? they they are they are the least <laughs> scariest people on the planet, but we were performing music that they knew so well, and they knew Donica so well, and the piece was enormous. And and thankfully, we we got on you know 
uh, like a house of fire. And I think it was probably a year later or so. Um, my entire contract negotiation was Kate one day at the pub saying, we got plans for you. <laughs> and you said yes. I said yes immediately. I mean, I couldn't imagine not wanting to be Actually, in the room Ryan, with these people all the time. I think you might have said, twist my arm. Twist my arm <laughs> with, with my tongue fully in and outside my cheek. And, and you know, I, Kate mentioning there about the, the group, it, it's the Crash Ensemble. And ensemble is a very important aspect in this, Ryan. I think that is one of the things that you really noticed from the beginning, the nature of that ensemble and the nature of how each individual fits into the ensemble. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's an enormous democracy of enormous uh, uh, personalities, and when you have the one of the great things about crashes, they make these really intimate relationships with these composers, and they spend time getting these composers spend time getting to know these players and what they do well, um, which is most everything. But they really know the individual personalities, and so my job often in the room is just to make sure that there's space for everybody uh, to bring everything that they have to it. Um, you know, it's one of the lovely things about these concerts we have coming up is there's a new piece on the program by um, Diamanda, who's been our artist in residence the last few years, um, who's written a piece not just specifically for Crash, but about every single member of the ensemble um, in a kind of microscopic detail. Um, and I'm so excited to see to, to see this piece kind of refracted through her gaze. Yeah, it, it is quite a weekend and, and a period of celebrations that you have coming up, Kate. But uh, you kindly have agreed to play a piece for us this evening on the program, which will be which fits in with the the celebrations uh, that that are that are upcoming. Tell us what we're about to hear and where it fits in to that series of events. Sure. So myself and Cayman Gilmore here are going to play a piece by Anna Mika. Um, the piece is called Groundwork, and this was one of our 17 commissions, reactions commissions. So over 2020 and 2021, we commissioned 17 uh, composers from various walks of life and various areas of life to write very short duos for two of the instrumentalists um, within the ensemble. These were recorded and they were filmed. They were made into short films by Laura Sheeran, who's our resident filmmaker. And as part of our birthday celebrations, we have released uh, these 17 reactions on a double album. Um, so, yeah, so this hmm. is one of them. This is by Anna Mika and this is called Groundwork. OK, Groundwork from the Crash Ensemble or Kate Ellis and Cayman Gilmore of the Crash Ensemble. There we have it, a performance live in studio this evening here in Arena of Groundwork. 
music by Anna Mika and that from the new album called Reactions from the Crash Ensemble. Ryan McAdams, conductor and artistic director, cellist and cellist Kate Ellis with me in studio, as indeed is Cayman Gilmore, who was playing on the double bass there. It struck me as 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 I was listening to that, first of all, Ryan, is just the, the wonderful complexity of what's going on underneath it. I suppose this idea of a taped element and a live element is very much part of contemporary music, isn't it? Yeah, it's been a part of contemporary music since tapes started existing. Um, composers from the very beginning were pulling them apart and, and, and you know, uh, uh, using scissors and tape to pull them back together. Um, and so this kind of, it's a wonderful way of uh, expanding the sonic possibilities of the ensemble um, because we can play with all these, uh, we can play with other instruments who aren't there in the room, we can play with pre-recorded versions of ourselves, and also we can play with instruments that can't physically exist in the real world um you know we can any sound we dream up and want to uh, make music with we can i'm guessing though that technically that makes the job of the conductor is which is the job that you do it makes it quite as much a thing about keeping time there's a lot of technology that you have to take on board as well well i'm never bored (laughs) um it's one of the great things about crashes is every new piece that i do with them requires me to almost figure out how to conduct and read music from the ground up. Um, I have to learn an entirely new language so that I can uh, best help translate between uh, four or five or six different personalities. Um, and But, you know, it's, it's not any more complex than any mm. enormous orchestral work or a big opera. Um, it just uh, sometimes the personalities are more exciting. But as Kate, as as Ryan described it to me there, though, these possibilities that are out there, I guess that is the excitement for you as artistic director um, as you look forward to perhaps an, another whatever number of years that you might be in that position. At least another 25. <laughs> is, is it that vast array of material that's just out there waiting to be tapped into? Absolutely. And there's always, always, always going to be music and there's always going to be people creating music. That music will change, that music will evolve, it will go backwards. Um, but yes, that is the most exciting thing. And I think also Ryan mentioned there the, the relationship that we've kind of over the past number of years, we've been cultivating very strong relationships with several composers. So our commissioning process has kind of been extended a lot so we have a whole array of compositions that will be coming mm. streaming down the line to us in the next few years. Yeah, well, it sounds it sounds like an exciting time, and I'm sure a, a wonderful stock taking has been done, and a wonderful mm-hmm. looking forward has has been part of uh, the last uh, few years and months as we move towards these 25th birthday celebrations event at the IFI, where people can see reactions and hear reactions in fact that you've been speaking to us about and also two big events at the National Concert Hall on both Saturday and Sunday Crash 25 Charge Disruption and Crash 25 Living Perspectives. Full details on CrashEnsemble.com With his dishevelled demeanour, his foul mouth and low-tech methods, Gary Oldman's Jackson Lamb is the least likely of spymasters, and yet his unit of slow horses persevere and find themselves tangled deep in yet another twisty turn uh, web of intrigue. Slow Horses on Apple TV Plus is back for season two, and fans of the series will be relieved to know that the door to Slough House still doesn't open properly. 
Slough House, of course, adapted from the novels of the same name, written by Nick Harriman, the presumptive heir to the late John le Carre's throne. The series centres on the disgraced Cold War veteran Jackson Lamb. Season 2 is based on the novel Dead Lions. Gary Oldman, Jack Loudon, Kirsten, Kristen Scott Thomas uh, are amongst the actors involved. It starts this week on Apple TV. Declan Burke has been watching season two for us and joins us now. Maybe just to, to bring people in, into the world that this is, Declan, explain the, the setup that is Slough House and what, the, the poor old dead horses that go there. Yeah, as you say, the, the, the slow horses, they've been put out to pasture, Sean. They, they were with MI5, um, as, as was Jackson Lamb himself during the Cold War. But they have made a mess of one kind or another and they have been basically sloughed off uh, to Slough House there to live out the rest of their careers in disgrace. Um, so, you know, they, they, they're, a, they're a mix and match them of uh, wannabes. Some of them still want to get back to the park, back to MI5 where the action is and so forth. Some of them are just, you know, happy to serve their time um, and, and probably would if Jackson Lamb wasn't such a horrible, horrible boss. He's, he's, some, he's an extraordinary character, Jackson Lamb, and even more extraordinary as played here by Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman is absolute. He has to be absolutely loving this character because I mean he spends most of the series with a you know a scowl uh, on his face and sneering uh, at people. You know he's beautifully portrayed the character as a kind of antithesis of the classic British spymaster or English spymaster, I should say. You know George Smiley was probably the best known of them all from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and and George Smiley as played by Alec Guinness was this wonderfully polite, mm. diffident, uh, very mannered character, and Jackson Lamb. Then wanders in. He, he's memory described in, in one of the novels, Sean, as a, a bin bag that has just been set on fire. <laughs> he, he's an absolute slob. He's cruelly, psychologically abusive to his to his uh, to his employees, and and in any other kind of work, he'd probably be sacked on the first day. The first season uh, of Slow Horses was ad- adapted from the novel of that name. The, the second season now is adapted from the novel called Dead Lions. It sounds like something like the Slow Horses. What 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 are we talking about when we talk about Dead Lions? Well, Dead Lions, it's, it's a phrase from the Cold War parlance. Um, the, the second episode is called Cicada, so we're not giving away too much, Sean, when we say that a cicada, according to the Russians back in the Cold War, was a sleeper agent. And British intelligence, on the other hand, called sleeper agents dead lions so most of the series revolves around the idea of Russian sleeper agents that were infiltrated into into Britain during the Cold War uh, you know and, and then went to Earth and waited to be reactivated now everyone would assume that with the Cold War being over that these agents have been de- decommissioned or stood down um, and, and that's what everybody assumes except there is a notorious, a, a fabled spy master from Russia called Alexander Popov, and we have no way of knowing if these cicadas, these sleeper agents, are the greatest fiction that Russian uh, intelligence mm. has ever created, or you know, is is it the greatest stroke that they ever pulled on on British intelligence? Uh, of course, I mean the Cold War and the, the Russian spy story is is an old trope, but has that taken on a whole new relevance and a whole new resonance in the current climate? 
given Russian relationships with a lot of the rest of the world and certainly with most of Western Europe. Well, absolutely. In the current context, there's no doubt about that, Sean. We even have to, if we go back three or four years, in, in Britain when there was, you know, alleged uh, Russian activity on British soil in which, you know, people were murdered uh, in, in real Cold War style. I mean, it's one of the nice things I think that the slow horses seasons have mm. done is they have blended the the new modern MI5 and it's all shiny and bright and so forth, apart from the slow horses, of course. Uh, but they've, they've rooted it in the Cold War with the likes of Jackson Lamb, who is an old veteran and so forth. And I think what they're trying to implicitly say is that, you know, it's it's maybe different faces, but it's the same yeah. old stick on both sides of the non-existent wall. Uh, and, and we only have to look to uh, the, the, the contemporary Kremlin to realise that, um, you know, the OKGB have not gone away, as they say. River Cartwright, who was played by, it still is played by Jack Loudon, he was very much at the centre of the first season of Slow Horses, uh, <laughs> and, and he was often the 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 butt of Gary Oldman's activities and jokes. <laughs> Is he back for more punishment in season two? He has come back for more punishment. River Cartwright, as you say, played brilliantly by Jack Loudon. Um, he just can't help himself. His backstory is that he managed to crash the entire Stansted Airport on a training exercise, and has been trying to make good ever since. And 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 that instinct to redeem himself kind of pushes him through the, the course of season two um, and, and you know there's something almost puppyish about him Sean you know, when you've seen it and, and he's you know that that would be brilliant if, if Jackson Lamb wasn't the kind of man to kick uh, puppies uh, rather than yeah. pet them and, and so we get River Cartwright you know blundering his way around the Cotswolds of all places trying to detect Russian sleeper agents Yeah well let's have a listen I want to get a sense of the, the chemistry because chemistry can be both negative chemistry and positive chemistry depending on the relationship between characters. Uh, River and this is River Cartwright, the Jack Loudon character and Jackson uh, the uh, Gary Oldman character very tricky relationship. Here they are in a Chinese restaurant (laughs) Gary Oldman well you'll hear how he's eating the noodles and how he enjoys insulting people while doing that with his noodles I see it's taken Oh yeah by who? Gillian Anderson's in the lab well, I imagine she'll be a while throwing up after watching you eat. Do you know how much it hurt me to write you an even half-decent reference? I'm all for nothing. I mean, you're still here. What do you do? You take a shit in the waste paper bin halfway through the interview? Actually, what went wrong was not having anything interesting to say about you. Should have just told them that you eat like a dying horse. No. It's my fault now my monster hire you. <laughs> He's just full of abuse, isn't he? HR would not take that, I, I, I think, too kindly if there was such a thing in Slough House. That's Gary Oldman and uh, River Cartwright there in a scene, or Jack Loudon as River Cartwright in a scene from Slow Horses Season 2. Uh, and mention within that, obviously, Declan, uh, that, that River has been trying to get out of the place uh, but hasn't succeeded. 
Yeah, usually, I mean, there's really only two ways out of out of uh, Slough House, uh, Sean. You know, one of them is a body bag, um, and and the other has been either bored to death, um, or or being kicked out a window by Jackson Lamb. Um, he, but he has trying to escape. He wants a better life, and he probably deserves one. Anyone who saw the first series will understand that. You know, River Cartwright is he's a clean cut, upstanding. He's got the right principles to do this job, and also mm. he's the grandson of a fabled kind of Cold War spy as well. David Cartwright is played by Jonathan Price so he has the credentials he's made one mistake Sean just you know crashed <laughs> yeah. Stansted Airport and here he is yeah he really did yeah he did crash Stansted Airport for no reason uh, which people who watch season one will understand however let's listen to him in in the he, he, the, the uh, Gary Oldman's character mentioned there about him uh, I gave you a reference because he had gone for an interview for a job let's listen to him looking for that uh, it's a gig in private espionage and here he is being interviewed and actually now, at a time of real geopolitical uncertainty, private intelligence can fill the gaps left by the national agencies, mm. you know? Absolutely. Mm. And it, it feels to me, actually, that those are the really interesting and often unorthodox areas of fieldwork to which I'm probably best suited. Now, on your CV, it says that you're currently seconded to a unit near Aldersgate. Yes, I am. Yes. Um, <clears throat> it's a bespoke unit deals more in analogue methods of intelligence gathering that's actually given me a, a, a real grounding in more database. Yeah, and that's great. Uh, so you work at Slough House? Yes. I understand that it's not everyone's first choice of assignment. I do, but actually I found it invaluable. So you work with Jackson Lamb? Yeah. What's he like? Oh dear! It's the end of interview, really. He said that the job is gone. That's uh, um, Jack Loudon as River Cartwright in the scene there from season two of Slow of Slow Horses. So Jackson is back. Uh, Gary Old uh, River Cartwright uh, is back. Jack Loudon is back as River Cartwright. We have uh, what's his name, Gary Oldman, back as Jackson as well. Who uh, is Kristen Skirt Tom- Scott Thomas still here as Taverner? They who's the kind of boss, isn't she? She, she brilliant and brilliant at it, Sean. She she is the de facto head of MI five. She's second desk, which is she's second in command. But she's brilliantly chilly and manipulative and Machiavellian as as the head of MI five, who is you know Jackson Lamb's most dangerous foe, uh, even including. Uh, the Russian, she's slightly underused in this simply because they've been quite faithful to the novel, but she really comes into the, to her own for season three. Oh, and so there is, we already know there's a season three uh, on the way then, do it we? Ha- it is in the can. Uh, unfortunately, we'll have to wait a year to see it, but yes, it's on the way. Um, what is the verdict then on season two? Now, I know you're a big fan of the books, so try to kind of push that a little bit to the side, because what if people haven't read the books? Can they just go to this series and enjoy it? I think they can, Shona. People who are fans of, you know, great spy fiction, I'm thinking Tinker Taylor, thinking of the Ipcris file, I'm thinking of Our Man in Panama... I think it can stand up against those kind of films, those kind of TV. Uh, it's it's wonderful. It understands why those uh, novels, why John le Carre, why Graham Greene's work was brilliant, because it charted the decline of the British intelligence service as a kind of metaphor for how British Britain itself was 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 declining on the international stage. Mick Herring gets that, and the makers of of the Slow Horses TV ser- series get it too. I, I honestly don't think I've enjoyed a, a season. Of 
of TV as much as, as the last time I, I watched The Sopranos. I thought it was absolutely wow, wonderful. Wow, so that, that's a high recommendation. Do we need to watch season one or can we get stuck into season you, two? You can get stuck into season two straight away, but it doesn't start till Friday, Sean, so you have yeah. almost half a week to watch season, season one. Season one, which you're obviously <laughs> suggesting we do. Declan, lovely to speak with you as always. That's Declan Burke speaking to us about season two of Slow Horses, starring Gary Oldman as the spymaster Jackson Lamb. And as Declan said, it begins on Apple TV on Friday, this coming Friday, December the 2nd.